In John chapter 20, at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 30, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel brings us to the author's stated purpose in writing. It's to convince the reader that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in believing the reader might have life. And there are those who read the Gospels as history or curiosity or biography. As a matter of fact, I've noticed that many modern classrooms offer the Bible as literature. It was William Barclay, the famous scholar, who said, quote, When we approach the Gospels as history and biography, we approach them with the wrong spirit. We must read them not primarily as historians seeking information, but as men and women seeking God, unquote. And that's right. When we open up the Bible, we're not just simply curious about its content, but we come like beggars with with a hungry heart and an open heart and a broken heart. It's a, a willingness to want to know the Lord. The Bible will sometimes make the reader feel convicted of sin or unhappy or insecure. And when we come to the end of John's gospel, we're confronted with his motive, with his purpose. John puts the laundry, so to speak, on the table and says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and I want you to believe that he's in the son of God. And I want through that belief to bring you from a place of unbelief to belief, from a place of darkness to light, from a place of death into life. The implication being that apart from Christ, we don't have life. And so in verse 30, he restates an absolute fact. And in verse 30, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You need to understand something. When John was writing these words, he was already advanced in age. Most scholars believe that he was north of 80, north even of 90. And everyone in this sanctuary and everyone who is listening to this message finds themselves at some stage in life, at the beginning or at the middle. Some of you are mature and some of you are more mature than others. When John comes to the end of his life, you can imagine as he's going through his life, he's recounting in his mind the incredible moment that he met Jesus, the life and times, the miracles and circumstances. And when John wrote his gospel, he singles out seven things, miracles, signs that he wants to draw special attention to. Eight, if you count his literal physical resurrection from the dead. There are some 36 miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. In Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, 
you see physical miracles like a leper is healed, a paralytic is healed, a person with a fever is healed, deafness and dumbness and blindness, a hemorrhage, Malchus' severed ear, and then there's miracles in the natural realm. Jesus will still a storm. There'll be a supernatural catch of fish. There'll be money inside of a fish's mouth. Jesus will curse the fig tree and in the natural realm and in the supernatural realm. Jesus will raise Jairus' daughter from the dead and the widow's son from the dead. And when you come to the 11th chapter of John, his friend Lazarus, four days in the grave, his body already starting to decompose, Jesus will bring him back to life. And John calls these miracles signs. And he does so for good reason. The Greek word translated signs is simeon. It is, it appears some 77 times in the Greek New Testament and depending on the context, it could mean a mark or a token or it can mean a sign in the sense of, of directing a particular person. When the sign is wrought or manifest by God as a token to the unbeliever, its purpose is to communicate the power and the presence of God. It was meant to promote a spiritual end or a direction. When I was a young man growing up near in the Mojave Desert, um, there was a road that literally wound from Los Angeles through San Bernardino and it came up the high desert and it was called Route 66. Some of you remember it. Get your kicks on Route 66. You know, some people have this fantasy about driving from one end of the country to the other on this route. And it's posted. There's signs everywhere. Route 66. And the purpose of the sign is to direct you. And and that's exactly what John is talking about. The purpose of the sign wasn't simply to authenticate the message, but also to authenticate the messenger. The signs Jesus provided weren't always the ones that the religious leaders valued. The religious leaders wanted a sign of a great messianic kingdom. They wanted a sign that would result in deliverance from the bondage of Rome. They wanted a sign that would spell material greatness for the chosen people. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders said to him, what sign do you show us that you are who you say that you are? And he said, there's no sign He says it's a wicked and an evil and an adulterous generation that looks for a sign. He says the one sign that I'm going to give you is the same sign that was given by the prophet Jonah. Just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea creature, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He he was making the, the, the... incredible claim that he was going to come back to life. And John reminds the readers that the signs were done, look what it says, in the presence of his disciples. This wasn't done in secret. This wasn't done in isolation. This wasn't done on the sly. It was so 
open so that everyone could see it. And by the way, the enemies of Jesus didn't dispute the fact that miracles took place. What the enemies of Jesus disputed was the source of his power. There were some religious leaders who went so far as to accuse Jesus of performing mighty miracles through the power and the agency of Satan. They basically said, hey, we know why you have supernatural powers. It's because you're in league with the devil. Now imagine how wicked that statement is. Because if you believe that Jesus is a demonic creature or a person who is influenced by devils, then you certainly can't come to the place where you believe that he's the Lord. One religious leader in particular certainly wouldn't go there. In John's gospel, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God has sent him. So even the skeptic and the unbeliever realized that there was something supernatural taking place. Even John the Baptist, when he was imprisoned by Herod, he asks if Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus replies in Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the God. Gospel preached to them. It's interesting. In John's Gospel, he makes it clear that much more evidence could be presented. But he also asserts that what has been presented is sufficient evidence to convince anyone of Jesus' divine nature. And Jesus' divine mission. It's been my experience that the person who keeps asking for a little bit more evidence, I just want a little bit more evidence, I just want a little bit more proof, I just want a little bit more evidence, I want a little bit more proof, is therefore stalling the inevitable. What they don't want to come to grips with is their own sin and their own wickedness. It was theologian Bernard Ram who wrote, quote, miracles are believed in non-Christian religions because the religion has already been believed. But in the biblical religion, miracles are a part of the means of establishing the true religion. This distinction is of immense importance. He writes, Israel was brought into existence by a series of miracles. The law was given by supernatural wonders. And many of the prophets were identified as God's spokesmen by their powers to perform miracles. Jesus came not only preaching, but performing miracles. And the apostles from time to time worked wonders. It was the miracle authenticating the religion at every point, unquote. Philip Schaff, the noted historian, writes, quote, All his miracles are but natural manifestations of his person, and hence they were performed with the same ease with which we perform ordinary daily works, unquote. In other words, Jesus didn't labor. He didn't have to work himself up into a sweat. Jesus' will became reality. Do you understand that? His will became reality. 
All Jesus simply had to do was to both will and work. Even Islam recognizes the ability of Isa, which is whom they call Jesus, to perform miracles. In the Quran, in Table 110, it speaks of Isa or Jesus healing the blind, healing the lepers, raising the dead. In a surah called Al-Madah, in the same surah, the enemies of Jesus declare, quote, this is nothing but evident magic, unquote. And the Quran condemns those who falsely accuse Jesus of miracles apart from the outworking of Allah. Now, this is interesting because also in the Jewish law books and histories, there are many references, including an early statement made by one rabbi, Ben Hyrcanus of Lydia, who speaks of Jesus's magical arts in the Sanhedrin, in the Mishnah around the same time from 95 to 110 A.D. We encounter a ritual denunciation by one of the rabbis, quote, Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray, unquote. In other words, whether you believe it or you don't believe it, the early accounts from reputable sources of the enemies of Jesus proclaim that he did the miraculous. Around 110 A.D., a controversy arose among the Jews of Palestine that centered on the question of whether it was permissible to even heal in the name of Jesus. And the reason why this becomes important to you is because there's a chain of unbroken evidence of substantiation that Jesus performed miracles. I have a coin of, of, a, of an emperor named Julian the philosopher. He's also called Julian the apostate. And the reason why he's called that is he was the last great pagan emperor of Rome. It was his heart's desire to revive the worship of gods and goddesses. His nephew was a very famous, famous Christian who wrote the first known history of Christianity. His name was Eusebius. But Julian, the apostate or the philosopher, depending on what you want to call him, in his work against Christianity, he writes, and I quote, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless you anyone thinks it's a very great work to heal the lame and, and the blind and exercise de- demoniacs from the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. What? Doesn't he understand what he's saying? Now think about his statement, number one, when he says Jesus has been celebrated for 300 years. He lived between 360 and he reigned between 360 and 363. In other words, the Roman emperor is declaring that there is an unbroken chain of celebration concerning the person of Jesus. And then he goes on and affirms that Jesus had the ability to heal people and say, well, that's no big deal. It's no big deal. Can you imagine if you had to actually do something or be something in order to be elected to office or go on television? I mean, think about it. He is unwittingly charging Jesus with the ability to perform the supernatural. It was Mark Twain who said, The things that bother me in the Bible aren't the things I do not understand but the things I do understand. 
And the Bible makes it so simple and so clear. Jesus came. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. And so that singular miraculous event goes to a purpose. Look at verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And remember what he's done. John has selected seven signs to convince the reader of the reality of Jesus's identity and Jesus's mission. You'll remember the first sign was Jesus turned water into wine at Cana in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And then you'll remember Jesus healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4 verses 46 through 53. And then Jesus heals the paralyzed man in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 9. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6 verses 1 through 14. And then Jesus in the storm on the lake walks on the water in John chapter 6 verses 15 through 21. And then Jesus heals the blind man in John chapter 9 verses 1 through 34 and then finally Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11 verses 1 through 44 there's a series of circumstances concerning the reality of his absolute ability to perform miracles and that becomes a big question if Jesus can Take something ordinary like water and then make it extraordinary like wine. Does it seem all that impossible that he can take your life and your circumstances? That he can forgive your sin? It was the famous church father Augustine who said that he believed in miracles not because Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. He believed in miracles because Jesus had changed his heart. Maybe you have that same testimony. You know what God can do and you know what Jesus has done inside of your heart. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 2, verse 11, John writing said this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So when you read the gospel and you come to the end, What are the things in John's gospel that we're asked to believe? You'll remember that Jesus told his disciples earlier in the chapter in verse 21, when you come to the end of the verse, he wrote, as the father has sent me, so I send you. The father sent the son to deal with the problem of sin. As a matter of fact, because he sent Jesus to deal with the problem of sin elsewhere. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, Mark has Jesus saying these words. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? That wicked people, sinful people, 
People who are in rebellion against God. People who are living in a dark and dirty circumstance can be changed. We are asked to believe that the Father, that is God, sent the Son. We are asked to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that He is the Lord. And we're asked to believe that Jesus performed miracles. Paul Little states the fact that, and I quote, Science can only say miracles do not occur in the ordinary course of nature. Science cannot forbid miracles because natural laws do not cause and therefore cannot forbid anything. I like that. God is free to change you. God is free to forgive you. God is free to make your life different. The noted theologian and scholar Bernard Ram makes the following incredible statement, quote, If the raising of Lazarus was actually witnessed by John and recorded faithfully by him when still in soundness of faculty and memory for purposes of evidence, it is the same as if we were there and saw it, unquote. You know, it was that passage of Scripture that changed my heart and changed my mind and changed my life. When I lived in the Mojave Desert, I was in, invited to go to a concert at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And the preacher was preaching from John chapter 11. And I'll never forget that... that when he was preaching from John chapter 11 and he was telling the story of the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus, I couldn't help but thinking that, that when Jesus instructs the sisters to remove the stone so that Lazarus could come forth, the sisters said to Jesus, But Lord, he stinketh. It was the old King James. It was before modern translations had really made their way into the modern vernacular. And I thought to myself, I stinketh. My life stinketh. There's something raw and wicked and wrong. One summer I had a part-time job removing dead animals from the road. Yeah, you go, you is right. Because if you've ever come up upon a dead animal in the middle of the road, the smell is overwhelming. The stench is suffocating. And it became a perfect description of my life. Death, stench, suffocation. And in reference to the raising of Lazarus from the dead, I want you to, to understand something. It's significant that, significant that Jesus' enemies never even one time denied the miracle. No one said, hey, Lazarus wasn't really dead and he didn't really come back to life. The enemies of Jesus, those who opposed Jesus, not only did they say, they affirmed that Lazarus came back to life, but you know what they did? They sought to kill Lazarus. They wanted to destroy the evidence so that other people wouldn't believe But that was the result. Life. Look at the end of verse 31. It says, and that believing you may have life 
in his name. What's this kind of believing that he's talking about? The word doesn't simply mean to acknowledge the existence or the facts as described. The word believing means to trust and it means to rely on and it means to commit. I've used the illustration over and over again of a very famous high wire um, artist who would take a rope and he would string it across Niagara Falls. And in the late 1880s, he would walk across this rope and there would be crowds that would cheer. And then he would get a wheelbarrow and he would go, do you think I can take this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And they would go, yay! And then he would, he would navigate and this wheelbarrow on this rope across the Niagara Falls. And then he would say, do you believe that a person in that I can take a person in this wheelbarrow on that rope across those falls and they go ooh and he goes well you get into the barrel and they went You know, it's one thing to see a person cross the rope, and it's even one thing to see a person with a wheelbarrow cross the rope, and it's even one thing to intellectually entertain the idea that he might be able to take him across the rope, but it's a whole other world to get into the wheelbarrow. And someone did. And he took this person across the rope to the cheering crowds, But even then, there weren't people who would stand in line to get into the wheelbarrow. I can stand in this pulpit and I can say, I got into the wheelbarrow when Jesus Christ came into my life. When I heard the gospel and I responded to the gospel, I got into the wheelbarrow. You may not understand what a journey that took. I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. My mother was 14 years old when she met my father, and she was 15 years old when she became pregnant with me, and then 16 years old when she had me. My father was born in Sicily right before World War II, and then my family came from Sicily to New Orleans, and my mother and my father met in in a project there. It was a slum. You know, some of you have heard of the ghetto, where the Italian people live. It's called the Spaghetto. You know... My mother's parents, my grandma, my grandpa, they were hobos during the Depression in the 1930s. They lived and grew up around Mississippi. My grandmother never saw a moving picture until 1941 when she went to Biloxi to work on the ships. And because they were riding the rails during the Depression, my grandma said to my grandpa, now, now that I'm pregnant, you're, you're gonna have to, we're going to have to get married and we're going to have to settle down. That just shows you a little bit about the kind of background. As a matter of fact, by the time I reached the age of three, my mother had yet another son, my younger brother. 
And because of a series of circumstances and abusive circumstances, my mother took the worthless furniture that was in our worthless apartment and she sold it to buy a ticket to try and join her mom and dad in California. And there I was, three years old. My brother on one arm and I'm on the other arm. And I'll never forget, we were riding a train out of Louisiana through Texas and the conductor came down the aisle and he said, tickets please, tickets please. And my mother burst into tears because we'd ran out of money and there was no more tickets. And the conductor felt sorry for this poor teenage girl with two children. And she allowed her to ride through the state of Texas and then through the state of Arizona till we got to this God-forsaken place called Apple Valley, California. And in 1958, it was desert, desert, desert. There were basically two people, us and Roy Rogers. We would literally drive to the big city of Victorville in order to get supplies. And finally, when a grocery store did come to our high desert city, my brother and I, we would just sit there and wait for supplies to come in. And we would just say, we're saved, we're saved. Groceries are finally here. And you know what? My mother, because she dropped out of school, couldn't really get a decent job. And so she became a waitress at the local diner. And every evening when she would come home after her shift, she would go to the backyard and she would dig a hole and she would put her tip money in the jar and then cover it up. Until my brother and I discovered her tip jar. And then we went out and we dug up the money so that we could buy ice cream or whatever it is that we wanted. Because, you know, when you're growing up in a world where there's no supervision, when you grow up in a world where anything goes, guess what? It's possible that anything goes. And that's the world in which I grew up. It was a world that was manifestly angry. I became so bitter and so angry and so upset that I had a deep resentment towards Christians in particular. This week, a um, Tammy, our receptionist, got a, an email from a girl. She said, hi, this is Susan Wentworth. You sat next to me in Mr. Starbucks class in history in junior high school. Do you remember me? I remember you. I was one of those Christians you mercilessly attacked and humiliated. She said, I read about you online. And I couldn't bring myself to believe that you're the same person. She said, are you? She said, I prayed for you every day. That no matter how wicked, no matter how foul, no matter how perverse, no matter how antagonistic, I would pray for you. And you know what? When I finally got to high school and a person said to me, hey, there's going to be a concert at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Would you like to go? I said, sure. 
I'm shaking my head no, but out of my mouth comes yes. Because he threw in some cheerleaders to bait me. But I got to tell you something, every ounce in my body did not want to go. And when he asked me the question, are you a Christian? I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. I remember distinctly as if it were yesterday, the Holy Spirit whispering inside of my heart. No, you're not. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the drawing. The Spirit of God was drawing me and speaking to me. And I so, so did not want to go. And I so, so did not want to believe. And I thought that if I could get into an argument with the person who was taking me, if I could somehow humiliate him, if I could somehow shame him, if I could somehow make him, get, catch him in some sort of lie or, or disconnect from his faith, that I could win the argument and I wouldn't have to deal with Jesus. But every time I would ask him a question, like, are you telling me 750 million Hindus are going to hell. This is at a time that there's well over a billion now. Are you going to tell me 500 million Muslims are going to hell? There's over a billion now. This was a long time ago when this conversation took place. But every time I would ask him about the problem of evil or the problem of sin or the problem of wickedness, no matter what I would ask him, he would say, I don't know, man, but you'll see. I wanted to enter into an argument, but God had a different plan. He wanted me to believe so that I would have life. And it was a very long drive. It was two hours to get from the high desert to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I remember being so angry and so bitter and so upset that I ditched the people who took me to church. But because it was a long way Back home, it was a two-hour drive by car. I decided that I would go in so that I could at least find them, so that I could at least get a ride home. And lo and behold, he was preaching from John's Gospel, the 11th chapter. The story of Lazarus. Talking about a dead man who could come back to life. And there I was, 16 years old. Hearing the gospel, hearing how Jesus had risen from the dead, hearing that Jesus was alive and that he could change me, hearing about his ability to transform people and to change people. And for a split moment in my mind, I thought, I wonder if he could change somebody like me. I wonder if he could take someone so broken. So dirty. So dark. I told you that in high school I was voted most likely to go to hell. My brother was voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. That's a dysfunctional family. That's a troubled family. And the people who had brought me didn't even know where I went. And that night... I walked down an aisle and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And the two cheerleaders broke out into a cheer. Woo, woo, woo. And it was amazing. Because only three people accepted the Lord that day. 
And when I walked up to receive Christ and to pray a prayer of transformation, the preacher looked down at me really disappointed. And I thought, how does this guy know me? And I came to realize that he wasn't disappointed that I came. There were 2,000 young people there that night. He was disappointed that more people didn't come. That's the amazing result. It's life. That's belief. When he says, and that believing you may have life in his name, the word, like I said, doesn't mean to just simply acknowledge the facts surrounding the history of Jesus, but it's to come to a place where you trust him. There are, there are three words that are translated life in the New Testament. The first word is bios. And you and I know that word because we get the word biology, the study of life from it. And suke. In, in our culture, we have a word that describes the, the study of emotion and will and personality. It's called psychology, but this word is zoe. And again, that's going to be a, a word that's familiar to many of you because we have a word called zoology, which is the study of all manner of life. And, and in the New Testament, the word zoe was more than just animation. It was the life principle. It was life in the absolute sense. It was the life that God had in and of himself. It was the life that the father gave to the son and that the son, the incarnate son, had in and of himself. It was the kind of life that was manifested by Jesus. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul wrote, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, death becomes the reminder that whatever kind of life we have, it is temporary. It is a life that can be threatened. And then it's a life that can come to an end. And we're asked to believe that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We're asked to believe that Jesus can save sinners and transform them. We're asked to believe that Jesus can take people who are dead in trespass and sin and make them alive. I call this the ABCs of salvation. A, we have to admit that we're sinners. B, we have to believe in Jesus. And C, we have to confess that Jesus is the Lord. The means of salvation is faith, and the object of faith is Jesus, and the effect of faith in Jesus is life. But not just ordinary life. Eternal life. Forgiven life. Abundant life. Someone once said, I don't know what I want, and I won't be happy until I get it. What do you say to a person like that? I don't know what I want, but I won't be happy until I get it. The thing that you don't know about, the emptiness that you don't know about, it's the life that you're looking for. One of my coaches once suggested that my whole purpose in life was to serve as a as a warning to others of what not to do. Some of you might be able to relate to that. Thomas Fuller wrote, We're born crying. 
We live complaining. We die disappointed. Christopher Morley wrote, Life is like a foreign language that all men mispronounce. The famous atheist and skeptic Bertrand Russell rejected God. and His father was an atheist who encouraged his mother to have sexual relations with Bertrand Russell's tutor. He lived a life of emptiness and wickedness. Bertrand Russell rejected God, embraced sex and religion, philosophy and math. And in his autobiography, he wrote that the only thing that kept him from committing suicide was math. He wanted to know more about math. And I thought, this is ridiculous. The the closest I ever came to committing suicide was in my math class. Can you imagine your whole reason to exist is so that you can figure out one more formula? Bertrand Russell wrote, Life is nothing but a competition to the criminal. Rather, life is nothing but a competition to be the criminal rather than the victim. Jesus says exactly the opposite in John 10.10. The thief doesn't come except to steal and kill and destroy. And then Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In John 17.3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life, not simply in terms of living forever, but in loving forever and being loved forever. And the point of the gospel of John's gospel is because Jesus is alive and because Jesus lives forever, you can live forever also. J. Gresham Machen, one of the great scholars of the last century, said, The Lord Jesus came into this world not primarily to say something, not even to be something, but to do something. He came not merely to lead men through his example out into a larger life, but to give life through his death and resurrection to those who were dead in trespasses and sin. That's true. Roy Lauren, a companion of Billy Graham, writes, Any act of true faith involves three things. Number one, it accepts the will of God. You know what the will of God is? That people not live in darkness and emptiness and loneliness and wickedness. It adjusts to the will of God. How do you adjust to the will of God? You have to know That God sent Jesus in order to die for your sins. And then it acts on the will of God. A Christian is a person who believes something and who does something and who says something. Roy Lauren again writes, these three things involve the whole person, the intellect, the emotion and the will. The coordination of all three parts of personality results in this experience of salvation. We're not left to decide for ourselves what such an act of faith is, but are to follow the clearly indicated revelation of Scripture. On my radio program this last week, a a lady called and she was hurt and she was angry and she was so angry and she asked me if God would forgive her sins 
because she asked for forgiveness, but she was so angry. And she was angry over and over and over again. And I asked her a series of questions that I'd like to ask you. I asked her, number one, are you a sinner? She said, yes. And I asked her, do you want forgiveness of your sins? And she said, yes. And I asked her, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and rose again? And she said, yes. And I said, are you willing to surrender yourself to Christ? And she said, wait. I said, why are you waiting? And she said, how can I be sure that that he'll forgive me, that he'll change me? Uh, Maybe there's something else that I need to do. And I said again, are you willing to surrender yourself to Christ? And she said, yes. And And I said, are you ready to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life? She said, yes. And then all of a sudden, the radio became a maternity ward. And we prayed a prayer. A simple prayer. Believed in faith. And she went from darkness into light. From death into abundant, eternal life. You know, I don't know how you answered those questions, but if you answered yes to you're a sinner, and yes that you want forgiveness of sin, and yes you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and yes that you're willing to surrender yourself to Christ, and yes that you're willing to invite Jesus into your heart and into your life, make no mistake about it. It's a turning from sin to the Savior. It isn't a commitment to come to my church or this church. It isn't a commitment to join some campaign. It's a commitment to follow Jesus in the direction that Jesus is going which will result in you living forever and ever. Abundant life begins now. But make no mistake about it, so does eternal life. The moment you surrender your life to Jesus, life begins. For whatever reason that I don't quite comprehend, some of you are still willing to live a life of darkness and emptiness. And loneliness. And anger. But if you're willing to turn from your sin. And if you're willing to turn to Jesus. I guarantee you as a person. Who has taken the journey. On the very thin rope. In what seems like a wobbly. Wheelbarrow. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is not a wobbly wheelbarrow. He is the solid rock. He can become your rock as well. Let's stand. And I'm going to invite you 
to pray a simple prayer with me, the same that I prayed with the lady on the radio. You can say it out loud if you mean it. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's the words and the meaning and the belief behind those words. Just repeat after me, Heavenly Father, thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I need your forgiveness. And I'm sorry for my past sins. And I ask you to forgive me. You know my heart. You know the circumstances of my heart. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And that you arose from the dead. I now open the door of my heart. And I invite you to come into my life. I realize there is nothing I can do to earn my salvation. And I place my complete trust in you alone for eternal life. I choose to follow you right now as my Lord. Change me, Lord. Transform me. Make me the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen.